the reading of the scriptures from Romans chapter 1, verses 16 to 17. I invite your hearing of God's word in faith and also in joy. Romans 1, verse 16 to 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In many respects, when you study history, or perhaps biographies, you, you are in part studying uh, the story of, of power. Not always, but in many, in many cases. Perhaps it's international power as nations engage in acts of war. Uh, or perhaps individual power, some uh, incredibly wealthy man or woman application of the power of wealth. Uh, and on and on simply the story of power, the history of power, the application of power. But as you know, as Christians, we affirm that uh, the greatest power of all is God's ability, because he has all power. You look at the character of God, his attribute is omnipotent, one of them, omnipotent, meaning he has all power. And this morning, uh, we're going to look uh, in a part, in a measure, at one of the greatest applications of power there is in all of the scriptures, and that is God's ability to save. And that is an expression of the reason for Paul's desire to want to come to Rome to preach the gospel because the gospel is the power of God. And the gospel is also a story of the righteousness of God unto salvation. And I would submit to you, uh, that is power. One of the greatest applications in power of all of life is the power of the gospel and the power of the righteousness of Christ. So power is present in the gospel. Not always manifested, uh, but it's always going to be present. And Paul begins with a simple declaration that uh, he is not ashamed of the gospel. Could very well be that this is, a, this is an echo of Psalm 119, verse 46, where the psalmist says, I will also speak of thy testimonies before kings and shall not be ashamed. giving a testimony of Christ and his resurrection before kings and presidents and prime ministers and generals and admirals. Perhaps any of us would cower, but the psalmist says, I'm not going to be ashamed when I give the testimonies of the great God before kings and everyone who is subservient to them. It's also by way of application, I will tell you a reminder that uh, Jesus says in Mark 8.38, Whoever is ashamed of me and my words uh, in this uh, wicked world, 
I will be ashamed uh, when the Son of Man comes in glory uh, of the Holy God and all of his angels. So Paul gives us an application about shame. We should be very careful about being ashamed of the gospel. And decisively, Paul was not ashamed of the gospel. And neither should we be. And Paul gives us two reasons why. Why shouldn't we be ashamed? Or perhaps we should restate that. Why should we cower? Uh, why should we be hesitant to tell someone about the gospel? Uh, the first uh, is a statement of uh, capability that inherent in the gospel is an occasion that obviates any expectation that God can fail when he applies his power. In a more compressed sense, when God comes to save and apply power, nothing can stop him. Again, think of the words of the Apostle Paul. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God unto salvation. So that when God wills to save, he has the power to make it happen. And it is indeed unstoppable and nothing can prevent him. Paul will reinforce this everywhere in this epistle, but certainly one place is Romans chapter 9 and verse 16. So that it does not depend upon the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. And when he comes mercifully to save his own, nothing can get in his way. It's a power that secures all conditions and sets everything in motion to consummate salvation. There are many conditions of salvation. Someone has to hear. Someone has to believe. Someone undoubtedly is praying. But God's power even sets those in motion to secure the end state for which he comes. It is incredible power. And that's one reason Paul was not ashamed. And perhaps one reason we should not be either. Absent by design is any reference to human power whatsoever. Because in the spiritual realm, there is no human power. Men are totally unable to save themselves. Rendered, if you will, impotent. And therefore affirming that God is all potent and must act. And when he chooses to act, there will be immediate effects because of who God is and the way he does what he does and the mystery of salvation. The salvation is all of God insuperable, irresistible, and invincible power. Uh, it's a power that acts upon the inner man efficaciously, again, to secure the intended object to save. Reading an object, uh, article recently by uh, Benjamin Warfield who said, you know, my, my favorite element of the five points of Calvinism is efficacious grace. Think about it. Efficacious 
or effective. God's grace is effective. So when that grace comes, it is effective to save. Because God has all power. And that's why Paul is not ashamed to share the gospel. It's a power that presupposes that man is under the dominion of sin and Satan in a fallen world. And thus, God alone in supernatural power must act to vacate the power that holds men totally, absolutely, and irrevocably. I mean, I will tell you, if you read your Bible, and I know you do, Satan does not let go willingly until God commands him to let go. And when God commands Satan to let go, even he must bow to the divine will inherent in the power of the gospel should and if God choose and will to act. That, of course, he does so is an act of sovereign grace. I can share the gospel and men can deny me. They can say no. A professor might laugh and chuckle. Uh, People might snicker. Again, I have no inherent power. But God does. And Paul knows when the gospel that he shares is wedded to the power of God, it's unto salvation. One of my favorite theologians who um, was the legacy of John Calvin at the city of Geneva, Francis Turretin, illustrates uh, this power when he writes, Our conversion further invincibly proves this when it is described as a creation. Again, we're part of the new creation. Only God can create spiritual life. But again, returning to turret and resurrection. But let me stop. Who can raise men from the dead? Nobody. Nobody can. You could take the power inherent in every power plant in the world, whether it be coal or gas or nuclear, and put them all together, and they couldn't raise a soul from the dead or a body from the grave. But God can. And not only can He, He does. Again, returning to Turretin, a new birth, a taking away of a heart of stone, and other like expressions. Illustration of that in Acts 16. Paul goes to preach a sermon. We don't really know the content of the sermon. There's a group of people gathered there. One of them is a woman by the name of Lydia. She was listening to Paul. And the text reads, and God opened her heart to respond to the things spoken of by the Apostle Paul. That's why Paul's not ashamed. He's speaking words. In and of themselves, the words of the Apostle Paul are not efficacious and effective or all-powerful. But when God comes to wed the preaching of the gospel with his power, Lydia's heart, closed, is opened. And she responds, becomes a believer. 
And she not only becomes a believer, she invites Paul into her home to care for him and to exhibit hospitality. How'd that happen? The power of God. Turretin is right. When God comes to create, nothing can stop him. In many respects, Lydia's heart was welded shut. That doesn't stop God. He simply breaks the weld. She comes to faith. Power of the gospel. Power is present in the gospel when God chooses and wills to act. The end state of the text of Romans 1.16 is unto salvation. Referring to the terminal end of the wrath of God. We need to understand there's two clashing powers here. The power of wrath that belongs to God. And then when God chooses to save and to stop His wrath. Uh, beautiful text to this end, if you want to turn very quickly uh, to Romans chapter 5, uh, in verse 9. Latter part of verse 9. We were saved from the wrath of God. We were under the wrath of God. The wrath of God owned us. John says in his Gospel, John 3.36, the wrath of God abides upon those who do not believe in the Son of God. Abide in a present tense. Wrath owns those who are outside of the Savior. Until God acted and He saved us from wrath. The power of wrath that does not let go until God relinquishes by another power. Much more than having been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through Him, through Christ. Through Christ saves us from the wrath of God. For if while we were His enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son. Much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. Saved from wrath. Saved by the life of Jesus Christ. Saved from wrath unto life. That's power. Only God can execute that power. You could take all of the armies that have ever marched, every navies that have ever sailed, every air force that have ever flown an airplane and link their power together. They could raise no one from the grave. They could save no soul, but this power can. That's why Paul is confident, confident power of God. And that inherent within this power is the entire order of faith. Embracing effectual calling and regeneration. When the Spirit comes to call, He secures the object of the love of God the Father and God the Son. And it results in believing in Christ as a provision for wrath. In the human realm, as I've suggested, men must preach, of course, and men must believe, but absent power, nothing happens. With power, everything happens. Life explodes when God comes to open a heart. And when men do believe, it's in response to the divine operations in the heart. I love the text in Acts 13.48. Gentiles are coming to faith. Many people are troubled by it. The Spirit says, don't be troubled, I'm working. And as many have been appointed to eternal life, Believed. They owed their belief to divine appointment, to divine operations upon the heart. 
incredible power. And the summons here is universal to everyone believing, but particular when God grants power. Reminder that I have a duty to preach the gospel, but I also remind you the necessity of God's sovereign, efficacious grace to apply his power. When you read in the Old Testament, the psalmist tells us everywhere, don't trust princes. Princes have power, incredible power. The ancient Near East, a prince, had overwhelming power. But trust God. Don't trust in chariots and horses. I mean, we should put that in modern vernacular. Don't trust in F-22s and B-52 bombers. Trust in God's power. Because this power is efficacious. And our believing is the effective power. And it's important for us to recognize that the gospel is the power to save and to raise people from the dead. As you know, this occurs in salvation. Paul says in Ephesians 2, you are dead in sin, but God, but God raised you from the dead and seated you in the heavenlies in Christ. How can dead men believe the power of God? Their spirits were dead. God resurrected them in power. So God has the power to save and to raise. And when we came to faith, he raised our souls up. Our souls that were under the dominion of Satan, the world, the flesh. God broke that power and made us alive and raised us up with him, with Christ. Of course, uh, I would tell you, as you know, that believing is an essential act that presupposes power because dead men cannot believe. Uh, our need in uh, the end times is, of course, that the wrath of God has begun. Uh, but it's also elemental in Paul's words to us that the power of God has also begun in the new creation. Wrath is inescapable, ineluctable, and inevitable, except when God comes to save. That's why we should be a thankful people, because God came for us in saving power through Jesus Christ. A beautiful illustration of this in Luke chapter 18. Jesus says that two men went up into a temple to pray. One was a Pharisee, the other a tax gatherer. The Pharisee, of course, is boasting of his power and privileged position. Uh, the tax gatherer, he's way far away. His head is bowed. He knows he's in trouble. And standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast saying, God be merciful to me, the sinner. The use of the definite article is decisive for me. It's almost as if the tax gatherer is saying, I'm the only sinner in the world, and I have no hope. But God, you have mercy. Be merciful to me, the sinner. Now maybe you don't see yourself as a tax gatherer. But you should. And if God has saved you, 
It's because He was merciful to you in Jesus Christ. And it was totally of His power. The tax gatherer knew that he was irretrievably and inescapably lost. And that he was totally, utterly dependent upon the mercy of God to execute power to save. And that's what the Gospel is. It's inherent with power. And that power to save is the power to raise. And if that tax gatherer came to faith, and certainly the context suggests that he did, it's because God raised his soul up from the dead and gave him life in Christ. Reminder that Satan has us in a vice grip and won't let go until God says, let go. And Satan bows. Beautiful application here in terms of the power of God. It should generate within us confidence in God as well as a sense of security in troubled times. I mean, I know we all get anxious about our children and uh, perhaps when we think of them, our heart beats a little faster and perhaps a little more trouble. I understand that. My heart does too. But we should be confident in the power of God and rest and trust in that power. I know for the anxious wife who goes to the hospital to pray over the sick bed of her husband, uh, natural for her blood pressure to be up, Natural for her spirit to be a trouble. But her confidence should be in the power of God. The power of God who can raise from the dead. Whether it be the body or the soul. Inherent in the power of God. Think of the greatest illustration of all. When Christ comes with his holy angels. And the grave will be opened. And all will be raised. Think of that. Try that. Go to a seminary. Cemetery, pardon me. Command the graves to open. Nothing will happen. Because you have no power. When Christ comes in power, they will open. And of the Christian, Paul says, and we shall be changed. How can that be? How can someone who's been in the grave for hundreds of years Perhaps bottom of the sea, covered over by tons and tons of silt, raised from the dead, and the sea will give up the dead, and we shall be changed. The most beautiful expression of power that Paul gives to us in 1 Corinthians 15 it should generate within us peace and hope and confidence that our God has the power to save and to secure his own. And that he can not only save, he can also raise. Because that's exactly what he does when he saves a soul and when he will come again uh, to reclaim the bodies of those who belong to him. Uh, this power is also exhibited for us uh, by the Apostle Paul, verse 17. Second reason Paul wants to come and preach the gospel is because the gospel is the righteousness of God. For it is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. It's revealed. It's uncovered. It's opened up so that we can understand. 
that God makes known His redemptive plan and how He does it. And that's the point of the subject of the verb. The righteousness of God is uncovered. It is exhibited to display before us the power of God inherent in the Gospel. The righteousness of God. Notice, notice the text. The righteousness of God. The modifier of God stresses that God is the source. The source of righteousness. He's the headwaters of power. He is the headwaters of righteousness that we need for salvation. And this is how God saves. Specifically, he changes our status. Uh, much of the ensuing chapters of the uh, book of Romans will explain this in fuller detail, but his righteousness, and by his righteousness, uh, as an expression of the gospel, uh, is how God saves. He changes our status. It's done, as you know, in the truth about justification. And the basis is what? The righteousness of Christ imputed to us. That's power. The imputation. In understanding the gospel, it's essential to us to recognize that he didn't make us righteous. It's not inherent within us. He's simply in divine sovereign power and grace and mercy charged to our account the very righteousness of Christ. And he declared us to be righteous. That takes power. It's an exhibition of the power of God. The power that saves is the power to raise and to clothe with the righteousness of Christ. The righteousness of his Son. Roman Catholic Church and quite frankly most every other Protestant denomination believes that righteousness is infused within us so that we can cooperate. Dead men don't cooperate. It takes power. The power is expressed and exhibited in the righteousness of God. And that God charged the immaculate, pristine, majestic, and perfect righteousness from the active and passive obedience of His Son and the merits of His righteousness and obedience to our account. Think about that in terms of power. Think what it would take to get the president of Microsoft and Facebook and Twitter to empty their accounts and charge it to yours. Take a lot of power. I suspect a lot of resistance. God is going to charge the greatest wealth of all time and the righteousness of His Son to your account by imputation, by simply divine fiat in power. It should give us great comfort that He's so gracious. Many people, of course, think that, well, we, we, we have to cooperate in some way. But again, uh, dead men don't cooperate. We are, if you will, done for. Beautiful uh, illustration of this in the resurrection of our Savior. Many times the scripture says he was resurrected in power. How does a dead man come out of the grave? Power. 
All the science in the world could run their course and never be able to make that happen. The greatest of physicians and doctors and physicists and engineers could never, ever be able to make that happen. It's just simply the power of God. And Christ was resurrected because the power to save is the power to raise. And the very resurrection of Christ is symbolic that we are raised us up with him to newness of life. That's power. It's the grace of God. In parallel to this power uh, is its revelation, its exhibition in the righteousness of God. Cannot be for man because of man's fallen condition. And that righteousness, as you know, is had by faith. In verse 16, we read to everyone who believes. In verse 17, we read from faith to faith. We must have faith. I understand that. But if you understand the order of salvation, the order of redemption, our faith is the result or the effect of divine power operating upon us. The cause is power. The result is we believe and have faith. What does it mean that from faith to faith? It's a figure of speech in which two elements are collapsed into one to stress the one. Intensify how important faith is, whose origin is from the headwaters of the power of God. Romans chapter 3, verse 22. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction. The righteousness of Christ, it comes from believing. The man who has faith. So how important is faith? It's incredibly important. Power is important. Faith is important. We must believe, trust, hope, rely. In that regard, the Apostle Paul will rely on an Old Testament text. Romans 1.17, but the righteous man shall live by faith. This uh, citation is from Habakkuk chapter 2 and verse 4. The context is very important. The prophet is complaining to God for using the Babylonians to take the covenant people into captivity. It's like, why would you use sinners? But God does. He uses the Babylonians. He's going to discipline Israel for their idolatry. Think about that in terms of power. At that point in time in world history, the Babylonians were the most powerful nation on the face of the earth. No greater power. And yet God commands them as their general to go invade Israel and to take the nation away into captivity. That's why the prophet is complaining. Why did you have to use them? And this is God's answer. The righteous man shall live by faith. 
Trust me. If I use the Babylonians, that's my choice. To use whom I will to execute my power. And you are in the midst of what is seemingly wrong for you to trust me. What a great lesson for all of us. We all go through struggles in life. I wish it were otherwise. We all face and have to deal with difficult men or women or perhaps bad news from a physician. Even Christians go through that. And how should we respond? I understand there's many responses, uh, shedding of tears or gnashing of teeth, but what must catch us is the words the prophet, the righteous man shall live by faith. Namely, we trust God that what he is doing is right, that he will work it out in his own way, in his own time for his glory, and that catches our heart from retreating any further. We walk by faith and not by sight. One of the greatest things we, ways we learn things in our culture is by sight. For the Christian, we walk by faith. It's very interesting that the prophet Habakkuk also gives us uh, another understanding because he gives the prophet a vision of his faithfulness to keep his promises to save and to raise and therefore to live by faith. Just like the children of Israel in captivity were to walk by faith, then we're to walk in the same manner now. Sometimes people get all upset over political upheavals. What's a Christian to do? Walk by faith and not by sight. God's in control. God has power. He can exercise it any time he wishes. And so we pray as Christians, do we not? God, come quickly. Because you have the power and the glory forever and ever. It's a prayer of confidence and hope. Based on what? God is some genie in a bottle? Some Santa Claus? No, the God of all power. Efficacious. Power to save, the power to raise, and to come for his own. The use of the Old Testament in Romans chapter 1 from Habakkuk chapter 2 is either analogical or universal principle. It's teaching us that we live by faith in what God has done, what God is doing, what God will do. What has God done? Sent his son. Became a propitiation for our sins. Punished his own son when we were the guilty ones. And then he was buried. And then on the third day he was raised up in power. Greatest demonstration of power in all the world is the resurrection of Christ. And by the way, I believe the world has no answer to that. Had the Roman world wanted to answer that, they would have simply gone to the tomb and said, these guys are nuts. Here's the body. They didn't because they couldn't, because the tomb was empty. Demonstration, power. God's power. The living power of the living Christ. Unified principle of all of life for the Christians were lived by faith. And what God has done for us in power. And what He is doing in power. 
What is he doing in power? Saving his own. None will be lost, the Bible tells us. Christ says, all that the Father has given me, I'll keep, I'll secure, I'll protect, I'll watch over, and on the last day, I'll raise them up. And that's what God will do. Raise us all up. The day that we shall be changed. Incredible power. And God's not in some wrestling match with Satan. Oh, the church needs to pray. Yes, we need to pray, but not for that. Wrestling with no one. Simply biding his time, gathering his church until his work is completed. Then he will come, power. And what a hope that is. We, we of all people should be children of hope because of the power to save and the power to raise. It's a beautiful illustration of this uh, in the history of, of redemption teaching us to rely and trust upon what God has done for us in power. It's an illustration, though historic, that applies to every Christian and every one of us in this church who names Christ as our Savior. William Cowper was a hymn writer, as you know. And he suffered incredible bouts of depression. Part of his testimony is the power of God save him from that. That God does and God's will and God is able to work. Whether it be through modern medicine, it's a great blessing, of course, uh, but also the presence of God. At 32, Cowper was offered a position that required a public examination. And he was so terrified and fearful of failing that he tried three times to take his own life. I don't know if you've ever studied the history of Victorian England, but if you advanced in anything, it was by examination. Like Churchill, you want to enter Sandhurst? You've got to take a bunch of exams. When I get promoted, you take exams. Everything was an examination. Cowper was terrified. Of course, it doesn't apply to you, does it? None of you ever went to school and said, oh my gosh, how am I going to pass this calculus test? That was my fear. I still don't know how I passed, but I did. I'll say by the power of God, let's say. Really a merciful teacher who dumbed down all the questions. But, but power nonetheless power. And during uh, Cowper, during his stay in an asylum, he was converted by the reading of Romans. By the way, that's true of a lot of great men. Luther, Augustine, something about the gospel in the book of Romans that we will learn about. And the righteousness of Christ and the power of God to gather all of his elect. And Cowper writes a hymn. I know we've sung. Listen to his expressions of power. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stain. 
The refrain repeated three times, I think is an allusion to the three times he attempted to take his own life, but God prevented him because he was yet to save him. Think of that power. I love the word flood. Sinners plunge beneath that flood. All of you have, uh, have some acquaintance with the power of floods. We hear it all the time in springtime Oklahoma. Don't try to drive through a road that's covered with water because the power of water is absolutely incredible. Most powerful forces in all the world is rushing water. It can virtually destroy anything. Give it time. It will rust and corrode everything it touches. But sinners plunge beneath this flood who is Christ, lose all their guilty stain. And that God provides for us a veritable flood to sweep us to Him in incredible power. I love the word all. Lose all their guilty stain. Washed in a moment by the power of the cleansing blood of Jesus Christ. You mean everything? Really? Past? Present and future? I think Cowper's right. Lose all their guilty stain. What a sense of comfort and release. If you're like me, occasionally you get incredibly guilty. Think of the words of Cowper. Lose all their guilty stain. Guilt forever washed away. Paid for. Past, present, and future sins washed away. Lose all their guilty stain. Swallowed by the flood of the blood of Christ and the power of that flood. It is said that on his deathbed, Cowper said in triumph, said in triumph, I'm not shut out of heaven after all. That's power. That's power to save and the power to raise. God gathered Cowper. If you know the Savior, he gathered you. And the doors of heaven will be opened and nothing can shut them because of Christ. Our righteousness, our Redeemer, and the power of the gospel.